the danger to Afghan and Iraqi interpreters and their families didn't begin the minute Taliban took over Kabul. I mean, it's been a persistent and ongoing threat. Hey everyone, this is Major Haziano speaking, and welcome to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. We're recording this episode during the week of August 23rd, 2021, where the dominant news story has been the evolving humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Major Sam Wilkins and Major Kyle Atwell from the Soch Department reached out to Doug Livermore, a board member of No One Left Behind, one of the many nonprofit organizations that have been working tirelessly to assist former Afghan interpreters and their families to secure special immigrant visas to get into the United States. They discussed the history of No One Left Behind, the current situation in Afghanistan, and the many policy challenges surrounding Afghan partners seeking out the special immigrant visas. Just one quick note before we begin. This interview was recorded on August 24, 2021, two days prior to the terrorist attack that struck Hamid Karzai International Airport. As of August 30th, over 170 people have reported killed, to include 13 U.S. service members. All right, well, that's probably enough talking for me. So without further ado, here's the episode. All right, welcome to the SOCH podcast. I'm Major Sam Wilkins. I'm an instructor in the Department of Social Sciences here at West Point. Hey, Sam, so happy to have this opportunity to join you. Uh, and Doug, it's great to see you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, which is on a very timely and important topic. And for the audience, my name's Major Kyle Atwell. I'm an active duty Army officer, an instructor in international affairs in the social sciences department here at West Point, and a PhD candidate at Princeton University, where one of my case studies I'm looking at is building partner capacity in Afghanistan. So I'm uh, very excited for this conversation. So yeah, so we're excited to have you here today, Doug, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, so to start off, Doug, you're coming on the show at a very tumultuous time for the long U.S. legacy in Afghanistan. U.S. forces have mostly withdrawn, and as U.S. presence withdrew from the country, the Taliban forces have been able to overrun key districts, provinces, and then the capital, Kabul, with incredible speed and effectiveness. The situation right now is nothing short of remarkable, and based on the news, U.S. forces are attempting to facilitate a mass exodus of both Americans and Afghans essentially encircled by Taliban who are only maybe tens or hundreds of meters away. Here in the social sciences department at West Point, like I am sure in much of the army and the nation, there's a lot of soul searching and questions about what is happening on the ground as we withdraw from Afghanistan, what is happening to the Afghan partners who we work with so closely over the past 20 years, and how did we get here? I know you've been working closely to help people escape Afghanistan through your involvement with No One Left Behind. Can you paint the picture for what is happening on the ground right now and what is at stake? Yeah, so again, thanks for having me. One of the things that No One Left Behind has been focusing on really over the last couple of months has been the evacuation of first, excuse me, Afghan special immigrant visas uh, or our interpreters uh, and their families from Afghanistan. However, uh, more recently, since the fall of Kabul, we've really expanded our mandate and we're helping to evacuate any and all at-risk Afghans and American citizens and, and other folks have found themselves stuck in the capital or, or other parts of the country uh, with the with the Taliban taking over the country. The picture on the ground right now is is incredibly desperate. As I'm sure you've all seen in the news, there's tens of thousands of Afghans outside the gates to Kabul International Airport trying to get on. 
so so much so that even many of our Afghans that have approved SIV uh, visas and are manifested on flights to leave the country can't get through the crowd to the gates to get onto the airfield. Uh, additionally, in about the last day, our reports that we're receiving from the ground are that uh, the guards, the, the Marines, soldiers, uh, other NATO partners at the gates are primarily only allowing citizens uh, or legal permanent residents, green card holders through, which is further complicating the matter. On the airfield, uh, circumstances are also incredibly hectic. Uh, as of the last count I saw, there were some 12,000 Afghans that had already been left through the gates that were on the airfield awaiting flights. So no one left behind in coordination with and working alongside a number of other non-governmental organizations like Task Force Dunkirk and a few others of our, our close partners have been coordinating flights, both uh, with some help from other countries in the region, but then also with our own chartered aircraft that we've secured through donations uh, to date. I'll have to check the most recent numbers, but we I know we've had four flights get out with uh, roughly 600 plus Afghans that we've evacuated to Qatar. We're getting ready to bring on a second line uh, through another charter company, uh, which should increase our throughput. Right now, we're, we're working very, very closely with Department of Defense, Department of State to synchronize our manifest lists to ensure that everyone's tracking which Afghans we're helping get off out of Kabul and those that are continuing to be moved in conjunction with citizens via Air Force Grey Tails, C-17s, and other aircraft. Yeah, so so there's a lot of interesting work and important work that uh, No One Left Behind is doing, and we want to dig into that a little bit. We want to dig into the CIVS situation the special immigrant visa situation and talk about the people. But first, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background. How is it that you got involved in this effort and this organization? What brought you here and what motivated you personally to want to get involved in this kind of momentous effort? That, that could be a, a long story, but I'll make it short <laughs> for the interest of time. So, uh, yeah, West Point 2004 graduate, started off as an infantry officer, a couple deployments to Iraq in 05, 06, and 07. Uh, made the transition over to Special Forces in 2009, graduated in the Q course, and then spent almost five years at 10th Special Forces Group, where most of my deployments were to Africa, but I actually finished up with an Afghanistan deployment. So like many U.S. service members, particularly in the special operations community, I spent a lot of time relying very, very heavily on my interpreters, not just to translate, but also to provide cultural situational awareness. Uh, which was absolutely critical during all of my overseas deployments. So I approached this with obviously a deep personal appreciation for the contributions of and sacrifices of our interpreters all around the world, particularly in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I came in touch with No One Left Behind and the specifics of the Special Immigrant Visa Program a little over a year ago. Um, and we can get into No One Left Behind later, but they've been around since 2014 in the trenches on this issue. But anyway, uh, in my role as the director for external communications on the national board for the Special Forces Association, um, which is a 501c19, that's uh, the largest special forces uh, organization or non-governmental organization uh, in the country. But anyway, um, in my role with the Special Forces Association, uh, the chairman for uh, No One Left Behind, James Miravaldis, who himself is also a veteran. Uh, reached out to me and uh, started talking to me about whether or not the Special Forces Association would be interested in uh, combining efforts with No One Left Behind to advocate on behalf of Iraqi and Afghan interpreters. And that was obviously a, a no-brainer uh, in my mind. So, <clears throat> so the Special Forces Association and No One Left Behind partnered up late in two, 2020 
And through that relationship, uh, James uh, invited me to interview for the board of directors for No One Left Behind. As I got to learn more about the process or the, the SIV program and, and all of the struggles and difficulties that our interpreters have faced getting to the United States and then getting properly integrated once they get here, uh, it became a very it became a project in which I became very passionate. So I joined the board of directors in January and have been working with them ever since. Uh, previously, I, I published through West Point's Modern War Institute a few months back now a piece talking about special immigrant visas. I won't say that it's, well, in the last couple of weeks, it has certainly consumed my life, but it's, it's certainly an issue about which I feel passionate, and uh, I'm proud and thankful to have the opportunity to contribute my time and energies. Yeah, there, there's kind of two things that stand out, you know, among a lot of, of really interesting information. The first is, it seems like this is deeply personal for a lot of people involved. You know, Sam and I have a lot of friends involved as well across the military who worked with interpreters or other Afghans. For them, this is, this is about personal relationships, which is interesting because when you read a lot of the news about Afghanistan, it's about international relations, going to war, are we stopping terrorism? But really for the people on the ground, it's about protecting people who they worked with on the ground. It's about personal relationships. And the other thing that's interesting, which I wasn't aware of, so does No One Left Behind just focus on Iraq and Afghanistan? Or, or like you said, is this a global effort for interpreters in regions all around the world? No. So No One Left Behind is only focused on the Special Immigrant Visa Program as it was established under the National Defense Authorization Act for 2006, which is just for Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, that said, we have had conversations with uh, some of the congressional committees to discuss opportunities to expand the program, uh, to look at other countries where we've been relying upon interpreters uh, that may otherwise be at risk, Somalia, many other countries in which I operated in Africa, for example. Uh, unfortunately, Right now, both the law, the, the CIV law, as well as No One Left Behind's mandate is really just focused on Iraq and Afghanistan. And I, I will say, and we can get into the details of No One Left Behind later, but we do have limited capacity. I mean, we are rapidly ramping up our capacity to help. But I mean, just between the Iraq and the Afghan SIV communities, we're, we're already very, very decisively engaged. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the special immigrant visa uh, program and where No One Left Behind uh, comes in and some of the obstacles uh, that you faced? Absolutely. So going back in time, the special immigrant visa program was first established under the National Defense Authorization Act for 2006. In, in its infancy, it was very, very small, uh, only a few tens. I think it was 50 in the first year per year per country allowed into the United States under the, the, this expedited visa program. So to give a little bit of background on the program itself, it basically established an expedited visa program for interpreters who had worked with the United States military that could show 24 months of honorable and, and credible service as interpreters alongside American forces. There are other, of course, requirements for background checks and, and due diligence to make sure that these people who these interpreters and their families were who they said they were and they weren't going to pose a danger to the United States. But the program was designed then to give these people who had clearly demonstrated uh, commitment to the United States and our ideals a, a expedited way into the United States to, into our immigration system. Uh, the problem is right off the bat is and has continued ever since the program was established was the incredibly slow and deeply bureaucratic processes that have hindered Afghan and Iraqi interpreters from coming to the United States with their families. So the law itself, when passed in the 2006 NDAA, 
required the State Department to adjudicate all cases within nine months. So regardless of whether or not a visa was granted or not granted, a response was supposed to be given back to the applicant within nine months. As of 2020, the last time that we actually saw an audit done on the program, the average time that the State Department was taking to adjudicate a case was three years. Uh, and of course, we've all heard the horror stories of five, seven, ten years of the State Department uh, working on a case without really communicating a final decision decision back to the, the family. Additionally, the standard that was being applied by the State Department under their their management of the program was, in many cases, rather ridiculous and divorced from reality. Okay, can I can I ask you, Doug? Yes, was it was it just bureaucratic processes that were slowing it down, which is totally a reasonable explanation? Was there other dynamics involved, like uh, was there politics that was slowing it down, a kind of um, deliberate effort uh, from politicians to, you know, not bring more immigrants in? Uh, and then secondarily, you said that interpreters had to show credible service. What did this actually look like? How, how did they prove service? And was that part of the slowdown as well as being able to demonstrate that credible service? So uh, no one left behind. Uh, we were established in 2014. Our founder was Janice Shinwari himself, an Afghan interpreter who came to the United States with his family under the Special Immigrant Visa Program. We say, unfortunately, that you know he survived the SIV program, the crucible of going through the, the bureaucratic maze. So when he got to the United States and he got established, he, he started No One Left Behind to try to attack many of the problems, which we'll continue talking about here in a minute. So all of that to say... No one left behind. We've worked with three presidential administrations, seven different Congresses. Uh, We've been in this fight for a very long time. So, yes, we would certainly say that there have been some politics as between different administrations. There was more or less willingness to admit immigrants to the United States. That said, we're, we're thankful to have seen the program expand. And particularly within the last six months, we've had great success working with both the Biden administration and in a bipartisan fashion uh, with a number of the congressional committees to push through legislation. In fact, it was probably about three or four weeks ago that uh, there was a congressional bill passed into law that actually reduced the requirement from 24 months to 12 months of required provable service for an uh, interpreter to apply to the program, amongst other, a, a lowering of the ridiculously high threshold, which I'll return to in a minute. The factors that's caused a slope in the process were many, and you already kind of hit on, on a few of them. One of the biggest challenges that interpreters had in applying for a special immigrant visa was getting the, the letters from the employer, because most of the time these interpreters were hired through a contracting company to approve their service. Um, un- unfortunately, those of us have deployed or, or spent more than a minute in the in the global war on terror know that many of these contracting companies popped up, made some good money hiring interpreters or whatever those services out to the military. And then at some point they are either sold or they went under or otherwise just stopped to exist. So in many of these cases, interpreters looking to get letters of verification had no one really to turn to. And and the way the State Department had been administering the program was in, you could have all the letters in the world from service members, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, whatever, vouching for your credible service and the fact that you were an amazing interpreter and you've done A, B, and C to, to support the U.S. mission. But absent a letter from a employer that may or may not exist anymore, may or may not be answering emails from from their former interpreters in in Afghanistan or Iraq, there was that those were the sorts of bureaucratic issues that were popping up. Um, additionally, going back to one of the things that was an example that was particularly galling that we've seen on multiple occasions is as part of the intelligence community background check, 
that was a requirement on applicants through the SIB program, there would oftentimes be cases where an interpreter through work he had done, he or she had done on behalf of the United States government had come in contact with nefarious actors, be it Taliban or any of the various uh, Iraqi insurgent groups. And because of that contact, when it came to their background investigations, they were basically being denied on the grounds that they had connections to nefarious actors. And because the process was so long and bureaucratic and drawn out, oftentimes, well, many times the applicant didn't even know why they were denied. In those few cases when they were told why, there wasn't really a, a valid or a, a viable appeal option. Yeah, so that, that last one is tough because the nature of society in Afghanistan is it seems like it would be almost impossible to not have some kind of connection through family, through friends, through the, you know where you came from with with Taliban. It doesn't mean you're a supporter of Taliban. It just means that they're within your contact network, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. And oftentimes that's why we hired them and wanted to use them because they could contribute to our mission because they had those contacts. Sure. So it, it was clearly, I mean, I know everyone on this call understands the nature of insurgencies and counterinsurgency and the, you know, the, the fish swimming amongst the sea. Um, but that was not something that translated well to the State Department and their, their processes. Um, and then finally, on the bureaucratic side, uh, you know, until fairly recently, there was also just absolutely ridiculous uh, bureaucratic hurdles. Like um, we've seen cases where letters of recommendation signed by U.S. service members being rejected because they didn't have the date next to the signature on the on the memo. So, I mean, it, I, I got it. We all respect processes and understand that all the T's have to be crossed and I's need to be dotted. But that said, I mean, there, there are. There are a myriad of unacceptable reasons why the SIV program has been has taken so very long to process applications. And then the last thing I'll say on this is that no one left behind only understands too well and has, and has communicated for years the very real cost of these delays. Um, you know, the danger to Afghan and Iraqi interpreters and their families didn't begin the minute Taliban took over Kabul. I mean, it's been a persistent and ongoing threat. Uh, no one left behind funded the study in 2018 that had shown that to date, at least 300, if not more, Afghan interpreters and or their families have been specifically targeted and killed by the Taliban. Um, so you know, every month, every moment that a, a deserving SIV applicant and his family are unable to get through the process and be admitted with an approved visa to the United States, they're in danger. So uh, that that's oftentimes sometimes I think that gets lost in the conversation sometimes when we talk about these delays and how ridiculous they are of three, five, seven, ten years and what that means to our partners, the folks who have fought alongside us on the ground. Right. Yeah, I think you did a really good job of painting the urgency uh, for this process even before uh, the events of the last several weeks uh, with just the threats that uh, these interpreters and others who've worked with U.S. civil society NGOs uh, are facing, and then the role of no one left behind. Uh, Doug, to to bring us to uh, the current situation, how has uh, no one left behind's activities changed uh, since the fall of Kabul? Uh, and then what hurdles do people applying for SIVs or others uh, who feel uh, are threatened by the uh, Taliban takeover, how, how has the situation changed and how has no one left behind's activities changed in that period? So over the last couple of months, right before the fall of, the Kabul, uh, fall of Kabul, no one left behind through a number of very, very generous donors uh, had established a grant program by which we, no one left behind, were using donor money to 
buy commercial airline tickets for SIVs or in Afghan interpreters and their families who had already been approved for their SIV programs, though otherwise didn't have the means to to travel from Afghanistan. Uh, we managed to get several families in, uh, a couple hundred people, and, and unfortunately, we, we still had a couple hundred Afghans booked on flights from Kabul International when the city fell, and of course, all flights ceased, and, and this turned into a massive evacuation. So since then, we, we know and left behind and in coordination with a number of other organizations have been running 24-7 operations. Um, we have, as, as we were discussing before we started recording, um, for the first several days, most of us at No One Left Behind were running virtually from our own individual op send, op, operation centers. I mean, I was operating from the house uh, with multiple computers, answering emails, forwarding, having phone calls with potential donors. So anyway, so but now we've consolidated down into a single operations center uh, with a number of other organizations and more direct contact to the State Department and the Department of Defense. So initially, we were in data gathering mode and data management mode. Uh, State Department had asked the broader community of organizations like ours to identify uh, at-risk Afghans. So, of course, no one left behind. Our database was primarily special immigrant visas and their families. Um, but that said, we, with all these other organizations, uh, jumped in and started collecting any and all data that we could on uh, women's rights groups, minority rights groups, at-risk uh, Afghans from the security forces and cons and consolidating all that data, which has itself gone through many iterations. I mean, we started initially with Excel spreadsheets that we were receiving emails. Uh, um, I've received, I have personally, I've lost count of the probably tens of thousands of emails in the last week uh, that required individual processing as far as receiving them. And as I said, initially, we were just taking the data by hand and jamming it into Excel spreadsheets that we were then sharing with the State Department. Uh, probably about three or four days ago, uh, most of the data entry consolidated down onto a single website that that's hosted at Human Rights First, um, where we've been feeding all the non-SIV data while maintaining a separate SIV database for our own purposes, for our own charter flights, though we are accepting any and all Afghans that make it through security at the airfield onto our flights. So that has been the data management. Um, which admittedly has been, gone, as I said, gone through many iterations, has been a full-time job in and of itself. No one left behind has a handful of our board members who themselves are volunteers, as well as some, some great volunteers who have come on since this crisis started that are just crunching data, building manifests. Uh, additionally, we have another team that has done an absolutely amazing job of coordinating aircraft. I think you probably saw on social media, no one left behind in coordination with a couple other groups, uh, non-governmental groups, and uh, a Middle Eastern country actually managed to secure hundreds of seats on that country's flights that were coming out of Kabul for the first few tranches of Afghans that we were able to process onto the airfield. Uh, additionally, we began flying charter flights because, again, our air, our air ops team has done an amazing job of working with a number of charter companies, both in the Middle East and then we're getting ready to bring on some lines here in North America, uh, airline or, or uh, charter companies that are being absolutely phenomenal in flying or conducting operations at, at cost or you know, really minimally above cost to keep our costs down as we're paying for these flights with donor money. Uh, and then we've had another effort that has been doing outreach to potential donors. Uh, we've raised millions of dollars at this point, which admittedly sounds like a lot, but goes quickly when you're talking about. 737s and Airbus airliners flying all around the world. 
and so that so that's been kind of the, the three streams of work into which our board is broken down just suffice to say that you know all of us have largely and 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 cut ourselves off from our real lives as far as our families and our jobs and are just doing this 24 seven in conjunction with a whole bunch of other groups. So the second point of your question about the challenges, uh, as I mentioned, there's some 12,000 Afghans already on the airfield waiting for evacuation. Uh, we're, as I said, no one left behind. And I think most of the groups are at this point, just taking anyone that anyone that, uh, that the NATO forces have allowed on and state department has cleared for travel we're putting on our aircraft, uh, the intent for no one left behind. And I think it's the same for most organizations is as no empty seats on our flights. I think most other groups are of the same mentality. Now, I think we collectively as a community have come together and said, regardless of whatever, whatever category of at-risk Afghans we were focused on before for the purposes of this, um, we, we need to combine our efforts and just get everyone that we can out. Yeah, so the challenges are the, the backlog on the airfield. Uh, we also know that there's a backlog in, in Qatar where most of the uh, most of the Afghan evacuees are going initially for processing. Uh, we are seeing inflows through Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany, as well as we've had the first couple of flights reach all the way back to the United States, as I'm sure you've seen in the news. And I think uh, I just caught the the. Uh, Mr. Kirby at the Pentagon, the spokesman, talking about how we're doing temporary resettlement at a number of U.S. bases here in here in America. So the challenges the, is the outflow. Uh, I think the biggest challenge that uh, many in the veteran community that have personal co connections to Afghans on the ground in Kabul is the gates themselves. Uh, there's been shifting guidance uh, and and standards for who's been getting through the, the gates guarded by NATO forces at Kabul. Um, initially, it was uh, it was Afghans that had a visa in process, be it a special immigrant visa, be it a humanitarian parole visa, or the uh, priority one or priority two visas. Now, I believe the standard from what we're hearing on the ground is, well, then a couple of days ago, it was just uh, Americans and other NATO citizens that citizens as well as those with approved visas. So not, not those in process, but those that actually had a stamp from state saying that their visas were approved. And then today we're hearing it's just American citizens and other NATO citizens. So obviously we have a concern because we continue to process SIV applicants and holders that are trying to get onto the airfield. So, yeah, absolutely. um, so, yeah, I wanted. So, uh, so the, yeah, go ahead. Oh uh, yep. no, sorry. I wondered if you could uh, elaborate. You talked about um, some of this massive mobilization uh, that you had on, on on sort of these three pillars of the data entry, uh, you know, securing these charter flights, um, and then the the settlement. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the reaction of the veteran community and the mobilization uh, in support of those pillars with No One Left Behind and other organizations. Yeah, absolutely. So as you can imagine, and sort of, I think, where we started this conversation, the veteran community has been absolutely amazing in their outpouring of support. We've seen a lot of organizations pop up. Uh, no one left behind. We're, we're very proud to be working with Task Force Dunkirk, which is predominantly American special operations veterans. You know, that, that popped up here in the last few days, and they're doing great work in coordinating a number of different efforts. Uh, and then, of course, being a member of the veteran community myself and a lot of my friends and 
other colleagues. Um, knowing my association with No One Left Behind, I've been absolutely inundated with both support and requests. Um, so I, I try to answer all of them between Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, emails, uh, phone calls. Uh, I mean, the, the community has been absolutely great in providing support, and they've also been clearly very, very passionate about in many cases, their personal, their interpreter or somebody that they knew from their time in Afghanistan. So uh, it's it, it certainly has led to some high moments uh, when we see successes. You know, we've flown out, as I said, hundreds of Afghans that have made it through security. And we've got on planes and every now and again, I'll get a note back from a veteran friend of mine or some colleague that says, you know, my my Afghan got out. Thank you so much for all your work. Our team is working around the clock, so a, I mean, exhaustion is definitely something that we're we're trying to manage. But then also, we're getting a lot of outreach from other veterans, and actually, our team that's doing the manifesting and, and the communications directly with Afghans of conversations that get incredibly desperate and and horrific when folks can't get through the gate or they're injured or there's you know, being hunted by the Taliban. Yeah, of um, course. So, and so, I mean, that that's kind of the the amazing thing we mentioned earlier is is the deeply personal kind of nature of it. So you mentioned vets and others giving their money and time tirelessly working around the clock, uh, you know, in spite of the fact they have day jobs or, you know, they have families. Uh, you'd also talked about the consequences for, you know, the Afghans of a very long and slow special immigrant visa uh, process being very personal too. like individuals are in danger. Uh, you know, I'd like to kind of extrapolate that out, though. You know, based in your experience in D.C., um, I know you're you're you walk in kind of D.C. policy circles. You obviously have been engaged at the very kind of um, personal level on this, but I'm sure you've been engaged at the policy level too. W- what is kind of the the chatter you're hearing on the strategic impact of of how we're withdrawing for the United States? What what is kind of the long term impact of this event for? Uh, United States relations with Afghan, and then just generally uh, posture in the region? Uh, well, so I'll first caveat this by saying that, you know, th- though I do have access to those circles, and I suppose you could say I walk in them, anything that I have said or will say uh, is purely my own opinion and represents no uh, official policy or position of the United States government or any of its agencies. Um, all of that to say, I think that uh, the world has certainly been watching how we have handled this evacuation or how we've we've really handle this whole uh, end to the Afghan conflict for now. Um, of course, my personal feeling is I would say that nothing is ever final in Afghanistan. I, I know I've talked to a number of veterans and I've used this line myself that the Taliban used to always say to us that you, the Americans, or you, NATO, may have the watches, but we have the time. And I think that's a perspective to, to keep in mind. Whereas, yes, the Taliban can control Kabul right now. They control vast swaths of the country. And there is still there's still resistance to them in, in Afghanistan. We've already seen that cropping up and some some minor successes. I think that one thing that I hold to for hope, and I think a number in the veterans community is, do as well, is that you know, while the Taliban may be in control now, uh, because of ours and the Afghans' efforts and sacrifices over the last 20 years, there's been an entire generation of Afghans that have been born and raised and came to adulthood living in a society where there was more something closer to uh, universal human rights. Uh, women were able to be full participants in society. They've gotten to see democratic norms and standards executed by Afghans. And I don't think that that necessarily gets erased overnight when the Taliban took over Kabul. 
So I'm hopeful that the final chapter in Afghanistan hasn't been written yet. I was going to say, yeah, I, I certainly hold that hope too. I, I just, I, I can't help but wonder that though this is making the news right now and it's pretty horrific and there's a large, uh, there's a large base of individuals in the United States like yourself mobilizing that, you know, as the media cycle turns and we move on to the next big thing that Afghanistan will essentially be forgotten within a year. Uh, and, and, and I, I kind of wonder what your feeling is on this, uh, whether this is going to be able to endure or, or do you think that this is just going to kind of fade? So that is a great question. Um, and I really think that the level of attention that Afghanistan gets once the news cycle moves on, which, yes, that is the nature of the beast, it will move on, um, will be really how the Taliban conduct themselves. If they conduct themselves in the manner in which they've, they've expressed that they will, they want to be responsible actors on the world stage, they're committed to more universal human rights, um, then I think really to the Taliban's benefit, that may allow them to, to fall from the public stage or at least not have the, the limelight on them so firmly. That said, I know in the veterans community and in, in Congress uh, and in many countries around the world who still have a deep interest in what happens to the people of Afghanistan uh, or the Taliban to not honor what they've said and return to you know, the Taliban of the mid-90s. Um, and visit horrific atrocities on their people, I think the world will, will pay attention, particularly if, as a sidebar to how they treat their own people, you see the Taliban in Afghanistan become a haven for terrorist groups again. While I don't have any particular insight into whether or not that's true or, or if it, things are trending in that direction, I think that will certainly play an important role in, in whether or not the world pays attention to them. Um, to finish up on the second part of your previous question on a broader geopolitical sense, I think that the, the rise of the Taliban and their current control over the majority of Afghanistan will certainly have dramatic geopolitical impacts in the region. Um, obviously, we know that the uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, uh, and some of the surrounding countries are watching very, very carefully because obviously they are not particular. they do not want to see similar uh, extremist movements in their own countries. We know that the Russians are very, very sensitive to any potential threats to the southern, uh, to the southern underbelly of the of their country, and will stay very, very engaged. I mean, we've already seen uh, the Russians working closely with their southern neighbors to build counterterrorism capability and try to establish a bulwark against the expansion of extremism. Um, so, in many ways, uh, while I, I, mean, I think we've seen plenty of open source reporting of the Russians and the Chinese government talking to the Taliban and, and trying to establish some rapport and understandings. I'm certain that that will be, continue to be an area of concern for, for both of those countries, given their own concern, their own interests as it relates to the rise of extremism in Central Asia. Um, more broadly speaking, for the United States, I also think that the world will continue to look very, very closely at how we behave post our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, if we stay insistent upon the, the proper treatment of and and we insist on the Taliban adhering to the spirit of their agreements to allow any American citizens still in the country to travel freely, to allow uh, Afghans and other at-risk groups to apply for visas, um, I think that would be one thing. On the other hand, it, and it, on the other hand, if the United States doesn't insist on that, or the Taliban is basically allowed to get away with doing whatever they want, 
I, I think the rest of the world will then question the legitimacy of uh, and really the integrity of the U.S. And, and our word to our allies. Right. Yeah, I wanted to dig in um, a little bit on that last point um, in terms of the strategic implications uh, of the work uh, that's going on now at the Kabul airport and with uh, organizations like No One Left Behind. Do you think that the difficulties faced um, by Afghan interpreters and others uh, associated with the United States will impact or hinder America's abilities to leverage partners or proxies uh, in future conflicts and in other theaters? Yes, absolutely. I think it will have a negative well, it will have an impact one way or the other. Um, if we honor our, our moral obligations and our commitments to the to the Afghan interpreters and their families and those other Afghans who worked alongside the U.S. and NATO, then I think that would have a positive impact on the willingness of other partners to continue to either continue to work with the United States or in the future as as the opportunities arise to work with the United States. I mean, we've already seen this in uh, Chinese propaganda directed against Taiwan. You know, there was a number of uh, Chinese official or semi-official newspapers that were you know, doing opin- opinion pieces and political cartoons directed towards the Taiwanese, basically undermining or questioning the commitment of the United States to its to its allies. So, I mean, we are going to see, however this turns out, either we honor our moral obligations and our commitments, and that reinforces to current partners and future partners that we are a reliable ally. Or if we fumble and we don't honor those commitments and we leave tens of thousands of Afghans to be slaughtered by the Taliban, then that also sends a very that would send a very negative message that our adversaries would then exploit to undermine confidence in the United States. So, you know, obviously, when you're talking about information operations or, or influence or strategic competition, it's difficult sometimes to assess. Uh, the metrics. But that said, I think from a macro level, I would definitely see confidence in the United States either waning or increasing based upon how we fulfill these obligations to the Afghans. Yeah, that, that's almost an, an academic question, I think, because, you know, so you're essentially arguing, do we lose credibility in the future? And I guess there's been, you know, historical examples of this. The U.S. has worked with some groups and then abandoned the groups and then come back and worked with them again and had open arms, essentially because, you know, arguably, um, when you're working with with uh, with a partner force, for example, in military terms, it's transactional in nature. If you're bringing something to the table, you know they might look at the past uh, and have some skepticism, but they might also want what you're offering today. Uh, and you know, I, I obviously don't have the answer to that, but I think that's an important question to figure out uh, whether this is going to long term hurt our credibility or if it's just kind of all tactical, short term stuff, short term IO gains, and then the world kind of moves on uh, from here. Yes. So, I mean, obviously, yeah, there, you can approach it from an academic perspective. I would argue that certainly you know, many of our relationships are transactional in nature, particularly at the tactical level. But from a broader macro perspective of the credibility of the United States or world opinion towards the values that we hold dear, I do think that that, that needle gets moved one way or the other based upon how the U.S. treats its, its partners. And I don't think that anyone on on this call, or probably few in the audience would question or would question the assumption that previous mistakes that the U.S. government has made with certain partner forces, be it the South Vietnamese, uh, the Montagnards, which the Special Forces community obviously has a long and enduring history and a relation and a good relationship with the Kurds in northern Iraq and now the Afghans. I think that every one of those experiences gets looked at in, a, in the macro perspective influences the overall credibility of the United States. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I do agree that I'm certain that with the enough money and resources, we can probably attract uh, partners in the future. But frankly, that's not sustainable on the macro level, particularly when you're talking about like great power competition and, and on a global scale, uh, looking at a broader, building a broader coalition of freedom loving and, and uh, democratic institution valuing uh, communities. Yeah. Let's bring it back down to the, the individual experience level. You've walked us through what's happening um, at the airport now. You've walked us through kind of the, the, the way we got here through the immigration process. Um, what happens now to an Afghan when they arrive in the United States? What process are they going through? Are they getting the support they need? And how are they kind of integrated into American society? Yeah, no, that's a great question and something that no one left behind, as I think I alluded to, is really where we have historically put a lot of our effort and our money and our energies. So when a special immigrant visa or another Afghan visa case, as I mentioned, there's the priority one, priority two, and the humanitarian uh, paroles as well. When they get to the United States, uh, State Department, through appropriate funds, does provide support for the first three months when the family is in country. Uh, The majority of that money is actually distributed through there's voluntary resettlement agencies of which no one left behind is not one um, because we only have in the United States, we only focus on special immigrant visas and their families. So we don't qualify for those federal funds. But so for those first three months, uh, federally appropriated dollars can help support these families, all of these Afghan families that come to the United States. Um, however, after that, really, they're generally left to their own devices, and that's where No One Left Behind and a few other completely voluntary non-government affiliated organizations come in. So as I mentioned, Janice Shinwari, our founder, himself an Afghan interpreter, uh, one of the things he and others in his community struggled with when they came to the United States was once that resettlement support from the government as uh, processed through and, and, and managed by these organizations, these other resettlement agencies dries up, they're oftentimes left unprepared to really integrate into American society or really unprepared because they are unable to really sustain themselves. Um, It's difficult for them to find jobs while on a visa. There's certain restrictions on the sorts of jobs they can do. And that's where, again, no one left behind has a very robust network and capability. So we have a SIV ambassador program. It's comprised of all Afghan and Iraqi SIVs themselves, all folks who have survived through the process and have come here to the United States with their families and gotten settled. The vast majority of them have since become citizens. And what they do is they manage this. Uh, we have a couple lines of effort, three lines of effort in our resettlement program. Uh, first and foremost being direct financial support. Uh, we offer no or low interest loans to SIV families. Um, we have an incredible repayment rate of 97% on-time repayment. Um, which is really unheard of even in regular bank loan programs to provide like emergency rent, medical coverage, uh, or medical uh, procedures, um, and any other emergency expenses that come up for the families. Uh, Our second line of effort is our uh, job placement program. We have great relationships with a number of companies, Amazon, Starbucks, Lyft, Uber. There's a whole list on our website if you go to it where we help uh, get Afghans and Iraqi interpreters and their families into good paying jobs here in the United States. One of the things we really, really love to tell people is that our SIV population is either, it's either at the top, well, I know it's at the top of the list, if not the top uh, refugee or visa recipient uh, populations that when they come to the United States and getting themselves 
more quickly than many other groups getting themselves established financially and, and becoming self-sustaining. Um, of course, you know, no one left behind. We, we help a little bit, but we really credit that to the entrepreneurial spirit and the American ideals that these families really embody when they come to the United States. I mean, much like special operators, uh, many of these interpreters are themselves volunteers many times, many times over. You know, they, they volunteered to step up to support their country, be it Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, they volunteered to become interpreters for NATO or U.S. forces. And then in many of these cases, they volunteered to step up to work with special operations forces, knowing that they were going to be at the, the tip of the spear. That's great to uh, that's great to hear about the successes that they've had and and how critical no one left behind has been in your in your efforts. Um, you know, there's been a real outpouring of support for Afghan refugees settling in the United States across the country. Obviously, the mobilization that we talked about. Um, there's also been some concern or people who push back against the notion of settling refugees here uh, in the United States. How do you respond to that kind of sentiment? Yeah, and we've heard that as well. There, we've seen a few pundits, a few voices out there, you know, expressing concern about bringing all these Afghans here and the potential threat to the United States. And uh, and obviously, yes, I, I recognize that for those that aren't familiar with the processes processes that are being used, that is absolutely a concern. But you know, the only folks that are getting onto the airfield are those that have been vetted. Uh, they're on the database. They've got either a application in process. Uh, they've got an approved application, and you know we've spoken to the ridiculously bureaucratic and thorough process involved there. Or in some specific cases of some of the, the Afghan refugees, they've also been vetted through the organization, or in many cases, veterans who have worked alongside them. That said, these refugees are not just going to be brought to the United States and the airplane lands and they're released to go wherever they want in, inside America. I mean, they're being brought to very secure sites here in the United States on military bases where the same rigorous processes are going to be applied. Um, you know, there's going to be full background checks. There's going to be multiple interviews. Uh, there's going to be requirements for uh, third parties to vouch for these individuals um, before they even get close to being granted a visa of any sort and, and released in, in America. So, yeah, I, again, I understand the concerns, but most of the, most of those concerns that I've heard have come from people that are not at all familiar with the process and just how rigorous and thorough it is. Yeah, Doug. I mean, so, uh, it, you know, it's great that we're able to get you to share this story with the broader audience at a time when I know you're you're working 24 hours a day trying to trying to get this done. Uh, and I can't help but feel that this is a historical moment uh, that we're going to be looking at for years and decades later, this withdrawal from Afghanistan, how it was done. And the, the story that I'm kind of taking from it, which we've conned you a few times, is there's an incredible number of individuals who are filling what is perceived as essentially a policy gap. We are, we are facing a scale of the problem that is unlike anything um, that we previously encountered. I mean, it, to date, or in 2020, No One Left Behind helped 646 Afghan and Iraqi families in the United States with some form of resettlement support. I mean, we're expecting thousands upon thousands of Afghan families arriving in the United States within the next month or so as they flow through this refugee pipe or through the pipeline from uh, Kabul through Qatar and, and else and to the United States. So we're, there's going to be a massive need for uh, financial assistance, job placement. We've, we're in conversations with dozens of companies right now that have reached out to no one left behind uh, through, well, I'm, I'll let you share the website if you want to, but uh, 
you know, I've been reaching out and we're in conversations right now about, you know, hey, once we get Afghan fam- more Afghan families here and they, they got into the resettlement pipeline, what can we do for job placement? Um, so we've appreciated that reach out or outreach. Um, so, yeah, so financial and job placement, that's going to be the, the longer term uh, goals that no one left behind and all the other organizations in the, in the space are going to be working in. So, you know, obviously everyone is laser focused on the evacuation right now. I mean, we've got no one left behind and, and other folks that are opsend that every single day are talking to Afghans on the ground or the veterans that are talking to the Afghans on the ground, trying to maneuver them through Kabul, through the gates to get to aircraft. But you know, we're also having to look further out uh, at that, you know, 150, 200, 300 meter target of, okay, once we get all these Afghans here, how do we support them? And that's going to take money. That's going to take collaboration and coordination on the part of the American community to uh, really find places to help help integrate these Afghans into into our country. Uh, thanks, Doug. Uh, on behalf of the Department of Social Sciences, uh, Kyle and I want to thank you for coming on the Soch podcast. Uh, thank you for your service to this country and for your tireless work uh, on behalf of our Afghan and Iraqi partners. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's our, it's our pleasure and our privilege. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Soch podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Doug Livermore, for spending so much of his valuable time sitting down and chatting with us. Thanks to Majors Sam Wilkins and Kyle Otwell for their help in conducting the interview. You can learn more about No One Left Behind by going to their webpage, noonleft.org. You can also follow them on their Twitter through their handle, at n1leftbehind. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast streaming service that you're using. If you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a five-star review and to recommend us to your friends and colleagues. Please feel free to send any comments, critiques, and suggestions to our email address at socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu. We love to hear back from our listeners and are always looking for new episode ideas. The views expressed in this podcast belong to those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any government entity. And finally, before I sign off, thanks again to the West Point Band for letting us use their music. This is Majoriano. Till next time. <laughs>